Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. This New Testament letter called James. And this has been important for me personally because James is really a letter about action. And generally speaking, I am more comfortable with speaking than I am with doing. I'm way more, in other words, comfortable with articulation than I am with action. I value an articulate faith. I studied English literature in college. Words matter a lot to me. (laughs) But that means sometimes, or oftentimes actually, my words outpace my walk. I once heard Christianity described as as oil painting. And so, in order to oil paint, you need to do two things. You need to load the brush, and you need to move the brush. And some Christians only load the brush. They load the brush with Bible studies. They load the brush with home groups and worship and books and books and books and more books. But they never move the brush. And then there's other Christians who are always moving the brush, but their strokes begin to run thin because there's no more paint. Well, it shouldn't surprise you to hear me say that I hope we want both. We want to load the brush, but we also want to move the brush. And James is helping me do that. And I trust that it will help you as well. He shows us what it looks like to load the brush. But honestly, mostly it's a painting class from James, brother of Jesus. Especially this morning. Verse 14 of chapter 2, James asks this question. He asks, what good is it if someone says they have faith but does not have works? I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this question. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? I'll read the text this morning. encourage you to follow along. We'll pray and then we'll dig in. This is God's Word. What good is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone says they have faith but does not have works, can that faith save them? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have words, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Lord, would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. This is your word. Would we be receptive to your word this morning? And Holy Spirit, would you enable us to not just cognitively understand your word this morning, but that we could effectively see the glory and the beauty and the truth of your word and of the Lord Jesus. We need this. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, my freshman year of high school, I decided I would be a hockey fan. Okay? Even though I'd never been to a game, even though I never really watched games on TV, nor were they really on TV where I lived in Indiana. So I know this sounds crazy, but I decided that I would be a hockey fan even though I wasn't really a hockey fan. <laughs> okay, let me explain. I like the idea of hockey. Uh, I was a freshman, remember. This meant I wanted to be edgy, remember. I wanted to be different. And in Indiana, everybody liked not hockey. Basketball. And so I picked a sport that nobody else seemed to. <laughs> I picked a sport that wasn't available even at my school. Yeah, I was a, I was a rebel. I was a real troublemaker back then. <laughs> And so, apart from my words, I had zero evidence that I actually liked hockey. Except for one thing, my t-shirt. I actually bought a Chicago Blackhawks t-shirt. I can picture it hanging in my closet to this day. Which I guess makes me a t-shirt fan. Do you know what those are? T-shirt fans? My profession, which I wore from time to time on my shirt was the only evidence of my fandom. And it strikes me, I think especially in light of our text this morning, that the same could be said of faith. That it is possible to profess faith, to wear the faith t-shirt, but have no faith underneath it all. To have what we could call t-shirt faith. And there's a couple problems just on the face of a t-shirt faith. The first would be that it leaves us unchanged. In other words, a problem with t-shirt faith is that the shirt on our back cannot change and does not change the heart in our chest. Jesus compared true faith to a fruit-bearing tree. Growing fruit is not like putting on a shirt, is it? Growing fruit... Is organic. Fruit organically grows from the tree. It's in a way part of the tree, not an add-on to the tree. 
As others have pointed out, it would be absurd to go to your dead apple tree in your backyard and tie apples onto the branches. But t-shirt faith essentially is that same thing. It's solely external. It leaves us unchanged. The second problem is it leaves others confused. When we profess faith in Jesus, but only profess faith in Jesus, those around us who hear that profession, who see the t-shirt, so to speak, will get the wrong impression and perhaps be confused. Is Joe really a hockey player? What? I see, like, he doesn't even know this. What? He doesn't even watch games. Do our friends and family see any fruit, in other words, in our life of our profession of faith? Evidence of our faith? Or do they just see a t-shirt? Everybody in my neighborhood, for the most part, knows I'm a pastor. It's quite literally my profession. <laughs> uh, that's what they hear, though. What do they see? Do they see fruit in my life? Or do they just see the t-shirt? That's a sobering question for me. Most of our neighbors and colleagues, if, you're, if you think about it, maybe even some of us here this morning, probably most of us here this morning, are even asking this question, what good is the Christian faith? Anytime there's a national or global tragedy, just log on to Twitter. And if you aren't a Twitter, uh, you know, member, so to speak, just go on the Twitter and just see what the national response is. You will see this very question. What good are your prayers? What good is your faith? They're asking that question because they only see the t-shirt. They only hear the words. And it's tempting as, a, as Christians, I think, to get defensive when that happens, isn't it? Well, what if we pause for a minute and seriously gave that question from our neighbors and our colleagues, it's due. What if we gave that question, it's due. What good is a profession of faith when our friends and our neighbors don't see any evidence of such a profession of faith? Any fruit? And what's amazing to me is that James is asking that same question. And he's on Team Jesus. So again, verse 14, we read the scathing question to the church. What good is it if you are all articulation but no action? And then you look at verse 15 and he tells a parable like Jesus if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Which is a lovely prayer. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? That's what James says. A person in desperate need encounters an articulate Christian with an articulate faith. An articulate faith that can articulate needs very well. I see that you're hungry. I see that you are exposed to the elements. May you receive what you need by God's power. An articulate prayer that even articulates good theology, acknowledging that all good things come from the Father, right? Acknowledging that He is the source of our filling and our warming. But this person's articulate faith had no action, did it? Because this person who had the ability to do something did nothing to actually serve this person. 
And so James asks, really with all of Twitter, what good is that? What good is that? Now, where James differs from Twitter might be in the solution. Because James, well, Twitter might recommend just walking away from faith altogether. And James would just say, no, 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 just embrace the real thing. If that means rejecting this, yeah, go ahead, reject that. But embrace the real thing. See, in James' church, there were people who had t-shirt faith. Who said all the right things, who were all articulation and no action. A profession of faith, but no proof, really, of that faithfulness. They had a t-shirt faith. And James warns them, look at, look at the text again. Verse 17, this is a dead faith. He says that again at the end of our passage in verse 26. This is a dead faith. He says it's a useless faith in verse 20. It's funny, it's actually a pun. Well, it's not funny, haha, but it's funny. It's a pun. James is saying, a faith without works doesn't work. It's useless. And then in verse 24, it's not the justifying faith that God gives his people. Verse 14, what we just read, it's not the saving faith that comes from God. See, in the Bible, and this is important, it's a real important thing I want you to hang on to. In the Bible, faith is a gift from God. We heard Elizabeth uh, read from Ephesians where that was declared as such. Faith is a gift from God. It's not something we sort of generate ourselves. It's a gift. And James would say, if we're all articulation and no action, then it's likely we've never opened the package. Or never received the package on a course to begin with. It's not the gift of faith from God. It's something else. Because the gift of faith from God, this gift of faith always includes action. The gift of faith is an embodied faith. It's alive, it's breathing. One New Testament scholar says it this way, and I'm quoting, quote, the main point of James' argument expressed three times in verse 17, 20, and 26 is not that works must be added to faith, but that genuine faith includes works. That is its very nature. End quote. Yes, genuine faith includes works. And to make this point, James gives us four stories in this text. Four stories. Like his brother Jesus, James knows the power of story. I like how N.T. Wright says it. Tell a person to do something and you might change their life for a day or two. Tell someone a story and you might change their life. Why? Because stories engage. They engage us. They engage our emotions. They engage our imaginations about the future. They engage our memories about the past. And they invite us into something. They invite us. All stories invite us into something. A vision of goodness. A vision of truth. A vision of beauty. And so God this morning, through James, is telling stories to us to engage all of us. To invite all of us into something beautiful. Into something true. Into something good. True faith. Good faith. Beautiful faith. With these stories. And what are these stories? Well, I read it out loud, but as a review, the first is a church story. We looked at that briefly. We'll look at it again. 
The second is a kind of scary story about demons. The third is a story about Abraham, and the fourth is a story about Rahab, both Old Testament folks. Um, it's the late biblical scholar Alec Monier who is the one who pointed out to me that James, as a preacher, this is really a sermon of James, as, as a preacher, organized his sermon on faith around these four stories. And as someone who understands, who preaches and understands uh, the importance of illustrations, I can acknowledge this point. And he points out that the first two stories here are negative. They're like what faith isn't. And the next two stories, Abraham and Rahab, are positive. They are what faith is. The real thing. See, James, what he's doing, I think, is sort of warning us with the first two stories against a t-shirt faith. And then on the second two stories, he's really inviting us into the real deal. And so let's take a look at each of these stories in turn. First, the warning. Okay, the warning. James warns us against t-shirt faith. Or what he simply calls dead faith. Because again, an articulate faith that is not active is no faith at all, according to James. And he says this with two stories that are really hard to unsee. These stories are meant to be hard to unsee. Now the first deals with, as I talked about before, articulate prayers. And the second, I think, with articulate theology. And so let's just take a look at each. Again, verses 15 through 17. Starting with this verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, says, says to them, there's, there's that word, says, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have words, is dead. It's not the real thing. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, first... Notice, it is a brother or sister. This means that this person is a Christ follower. Second, notice that they're poorly clothed. In the Greek, it says here that they're naked, which meant in those days that you were exposed to the harsh elements. You probably didn't have a cloak. And then third, notice they're lacking daily food. Not just food today, but food every day. And what happens Somebody is in a position to give them the things needed for their body, action, but all they give them are words, articulate words. Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And so here we have a very ugly parable on what it looks like to have articulate prayers without merciful action in our lives. James says, don't be fooled, this is not the faith that God gives his people. Because the faith that God gives his people is not just articulate but active. That's what he says. And of course, James cares about articulate theology. After all, we're reading his sermon. <laughs> and all we have to do is look at what's coming in verse 1 of chapter 3 to know that he cares about our words. And he cares about our speech. And about what we say. But faith that is only words, James declares dead on arrival. Why? Well, look at verse 17. It's by itself. Faith by itself is no faith. That's the definition. Faith by itself is not faith. So there's a French theologian in the 16th century, and he put it this way. We are saved by faith alone, Romans 3, 
28. Can I get an amen? We are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Articulate prayers without costly action is no evidence of true faith. That's the first story. The second story James tells is about demons, and it's in verse 18, starting in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. That's a good thing. But even the demons believe in shudder. Do you want to be shown you foolish or empty person that faith apart from works is useless? So what's going on here with this story? James, I think, is anticipating an objection from his church. This is an imaginary person that probably existed in his church. And maybe they were saying, but Pastor James... You are far too bullish on works. Don't you know that there are some people who have the gift of action, and there are others who have sort of the gift of articulation? Don't you know that that God gives a gift of faith as He gives gifts, like spiritual gifts, to those who are really good at rolling up their sleeves? I have the gift of faith. I don't have the gift of mercy. You know, I'm not good at it. That's why we have deacons. They have the gift of mercy. Today, that person might say, James, don't you know there are churches that are all about justice and mercy to the downtrodden, and that's their gift and special contribution to the kingdom. But us, our gift is good theology. You know? Besides, we know that churches that get concerned about mercy and justice and earthly matters like food and clothing, we know uh, they start to lose the gospel. And so what do we do? We want to maintain the gospel. Um, We want to hold fast to spiritual things, not bodily things like food and clothing. And to this, James is just going to tell a story about demons. (laughs) Who are articulate in their theology, but shuddering in terror. Why? Because if you think about it, demons are perfectly orthodox in their theological worldview. They know exactly who God is. Just read the Gospels, they know who God is. They just don't love Him or obey Him. Their faith, you could say, is only cognitive. It's not affective or active. It's, in James' words, the dead faith. So James is, I think, saying, if your faith is doctrinally precise, that's good. That is a good thing. He says that, that's good. But if it remains in your brain and it doesn't flow into acts of mercy, you are in the same camp as a, as a demon. That's, that's James' hard-to-unsee story. 
I like how one writer puts it, quote, it's a good thing to possess accurate theology. But it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. The faith God gives his people is articulate and active. It's both. It's both. It's both. When I was a kid, I had a moped, and it was amazing. My dad, he bought it for me when I was 15, and I drove this moped everywhere in our small little subdivision, and sometimes to my grandma's house when I had to mow the yard. That was awesome. Um, And this moped had a two-cycle engine on it. You know what I'm talking about there? It meant that I needed to add a little bit of oil to the gasoline in order for the engine to work in order for the engine to run. And the ratio was 50 to 1. 50 units of gasoline to one unit of oil. And so I had an oil can over here and my gas can over here in the garage. And every so often I would just add like a little lid full of oil into the gas can. And I think sometimes we treat faith and works like those two gas cans. What do I mean? We think faith is like the gasoline... And works is like the oil. Two separate things. And we must from time to time add a little capful of oil to the gasoline in order for the engine called Christianity to work. 50 parts theological precision. One part loving action. But James would say that is a false view of faith from the front, from the front. It's just a false start when it comes to the faith that God gives. Because the faith that God gives us, gifts us even, includes loving works. You don't add it, it includes it. It's part of the deal. Works is not something you add to faith like oil to gas. They're a package deal in God's economy. The Apostle Paul says it well. And we heard it read to us. This is Ephesians 2, verse 8. Just listen. For, gra- for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. This faith itself is not your doing. It is the what? The gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This isn't something you add to your faith. It's built in. You walk in them, according to Paul and according to James. They're not things we do, these works, to impress God or to stay in His good grace. They're part of His grace. They're part of His gracious gift to us. We don't obey to get God's love. We precisely obey because we already have it. We've been given a gift of faith where He is now lovely and desirable. And when we obey Him, it's part of the deal. And so these first two stories serve, I think, as a warning to us. Articulation without action is not the real deal. That's James' warning. Now notice though, it's a warning to the church. This isn't a theoretical warning. 
James assumes that you are his brother and sister in Christ. I mean, just look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith. Okay? So James is warning us about false faith even as he is talking to people he assumes has a real deal. So it's a warning, and it's, I think, a loving warning. He's not warning us to shame us. He's not warning us to shun us or to send us home despairing and worrying whether or not we are true Christians. When I warn my kids about cars as they ride their bikes to school, I'm not shunning them. I'm loving them. That's obvious. Same with God in this passage. This is a loving warning. If faith is a gift from God that includes action, and James is saying, open the whole package, please. Open the whole package. Have you ever given a gift to someone and sort of the junky gift is on top and you're excited about the good gift that's kind of underneath it? You know what I'm talking about? And so your friend or your family member opens that box and they see the socks and they're kind of like, you know, they, they give you that feigned thank you, that sort of, because they're polite and they've been raised well, they're like, oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> and what do you want to say? You want to say, there's more, open more. There's more in the package. There is more. And that's what James is doing. He's saying there is more. There is more. Lay hold of what true faith is. Lay hold of what the faith that God gives us is. Embody your faith with loving action. That's that's what God gave you. See, an articulate faith without action just isn't an an authentic faith at all. And it's easy to see why. When you consider the character of God... God doesn't just say nice things to you. That's amazing. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor. He didn't say, fill yourself and be warm in God's power. He became poor so that we would have his inheritance. Jesus, though he was God, did not leverage his divine privileges, but instead humbled himself even to the point of crucifixion Why? To save us. His life was one of costly action. Not just articulation. Our salvation is anchored, in other words, not just in God's best wishes, but in Jesus' blood. So an articulate faith without action just doesn't even match the giver of that gift. Which takes us to the invitation. The invitation to true faith. And the first two stories served us as a loving warning, maybe against the false thing. The next two stories are taken from the Old Testament as an illustration of the real thing. And again, this original audience was largely Jewish, and so this, these two stories had immense power in their life. So James is bringing them to these folks, Abraham and Rahab. The two people actually should surprise us all with James picks. Abraham and Rahab. Because they were very different in all kinds of different ways. But James hand selects them because of what they have in common. True faith. That's what they have in common. So with Abraham, we encounter this story. Let's read again what James says in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that that faith 
was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not just faith alone. So James references two signposts in the faith story of Abraham. Number one, the moment he first trusted God and his promises, which we see in verse 23. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That was early in his faith journey, right at the beginning of his faith journey, Abraham. We see it in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, if you want to take a look where that is being referenced. And number two, we see his, an act of trust. We see an act of trust, like active trust in God's promises. So he believed in his promises before he could do anything first. That's Genesis 15. And then he acted on that trust. And he acted on that belief in God's promises later in his life, Genesis 22, verse 12. So Abraham obeys God and trusts God that God would somehow save his son, Isaac, even though God says to offer him as a sacrifice, which was a giant theological conundrum for Abraham because he knew that it was through Isaac and through Isaac's offspring that God was going to bless the world. And so why on earth is God asking him to stop the line? To stop the line of promise? That's a real question about God's character, isn't it? That's a real question about God's faithfulness to his promises and so when Abraham in his early first faith journey says, I believe in God's promises, and then God counts that as righteousness, what we see later in his life is an act of trust on those very promises. And James wants to, us to see that Abraham in a way is activating or even, even demonstrating that justifying faith. The initial trust in God made him right with God. God declared him righteous, it says, in that moment. And the Apostle Paul, he makes much of this part of Abraham's story. If you've ever read Paul's letters, Paul really loves to hammer this home because he's talking to a bunch of people who think their works got them into God's graces. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Look at Abraham. He just trusted in God's promises and that counted him amongst God's people. But James, he, he sort of fast forwards, and he makes much of the binding of Isaac, as it's called in Jewish tradition. Because that act of trust fulfilled, to use James's language, it fulfilled, filled up that initial declaration of righteousness that God gave. It showed him to be righteous. It was revealing. It was fruit from the soil. It was evidence of the genuine faith that God gives. I really appreciate how one writer puts it. I'll just quote it in full. James dealt with an experience of Abraham long after God had declared him righteous because of his faith. He was showing, therefore, not that Abraham gained a right relationship with God through works, but that his willingness to express his faith through obedience justified his claim to faith. In other words, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. What's amazing is that if you look at Abraham's life and if you study Abraham's life, 
you're going to notice a lot of failure too, especially around the line of promise. In his life, I mean, he sought to, to build his family in illegitimate and unfaithful ways. And perhaps he could justify it because he's like, God's got to you know, bless the world through, through, through my family. Doesn't look like it's happening, so I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. And he does, and it's a disaster. So it's kind of amazing, actually, that James picks Abraham. And it shows you that this wavering life is a life of almost mustard seed faith, but yet he does trust God and his promises. Jesus says he accepts our mustard seed faith. We will waver, but in the end, God's promises. And our trust in God's promises will evidence itself through our actions. It just will. It just will. That's the faith God gives His people. The next we encounter a story about Rahab. I just want to read what James says again here. And in the same way also was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So a couple things to notice here. First, that James reminds us in the text that Rahab was a prostitute when she was given the gift of justifying faith. And so, question, does he do this to shame her? I don't think so. James is is really honoring Rahab, like the writer of Hebrews honors Rahab, puts her next to Moses in the sort of hall of faith, as it's been called. And remember, Rahab was in the lineage of Jesus, which means Rahab was in the lineage of James. This is a hero for James. James is making a theological point by adding that detail. I like what Marianne Campbell says. She says, Rahab differs in almost every way from Abraham. Whereas Abraham was a wealthy, quote, moral male, the father of the Jewish nations, Jewish nation, and a major figure in his society, Rahab was probably poor, immoral, a female, an outcast of the Canaanite nation. Not an Israelite. And a minor figure in her own society. James is saying God is indiscriminate in his grace. He flings the gift of faith around. And it lands in places that we might not expect. The second notice how Rahab's faith was evidenced by her costly and dangerous neighbor love. So like Abraham, she heard of God's power and she heard of the reality of Yahweh and God gifted her with justifying faith at that moment and then later in her life, there came a moment when she could hide God's people, the Israelites, hiding in her home, could hide them safe. And she did the risky but loving thing. When those out to harm them came. And James says at this moment, at this moment, sort of vindicated her faith. It didn't earn her salvation. It proved her faith to be the one that God gifts his people. Like Abraham, she was justified by faith alone, but that faith, again, 
is not alone. She showed costly, dangerous hospitality to the vulnerable. Last, uh, last week I had the opportunity to watch the men's national soccer team against Costa Rica. And it was amazing to see all of our best male players on the pitch. And it got me thinking about how amazing it must feel to get an invitation to play on that team. And I actually started to think, what happens? Do you get an email? I mean, do you get a letter in the mail? Like, like Hogwarts? Like, what is going on there? Um, what, where, however you find out that you're on the team and been called up, you've been invited to, be, to play on this amazing team. And, we, and of course, it is an amazing privilege. And James, I think, is saying something incredibly similar about faith, because faith, remember, is inherently connected to God's call. And so in James chapter 2, verse 5, we see even this call language from James. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? So what we have here is that God gifts his people with faith so that you would play on his team. He is calling you to run onto the field and to leave it all onto the field. And you may doubt your ability, but God doesn't care. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the scandal of the gospel. Is that he calls people onto the field who don't deserve it. And he gifts them with faith. But here's the thing. He wants you on the field. In all your weakness, because that's where his power can be demonstrated. And so God, I think, is inviting you to leave it all on the field. And that's how we should understand faith. We should connect it to God's call. I've heard a pastor describe faithfulness that way. You're simply leaving it all on the field. There's a freedom in that. There's a freedom in that. Like Rahab and like Abraham, you allow the same trust in God's promises that you have today, you allow that to throw you onto the field. Not because you're insecure about your salvation, but precisely because you are secure in it. And you have nothing to lose. You know, God's people have not been given a t-shirt. Something to wear. Something to put on. We've been given something so much better. A faith that is alive, a faith that is fruitful, what Paul calls faith working itself out through loving action in Galatians 5. What the Apostle John calls a life of loving others. What Jesus calls a life of fruitfulness. And what James simply calls. And so with hope, be known not just for our articulate faith. But are after faith. I've noticed over the years that there tends to be two kinds of communities of Jesus. There's kind of wordy churches, and there's we'll call them like worksy churches. I just noticed this is a broad overgeneralization, but there are those who are all about sermons, prayers, confessions of faith, advice, encouragement. To use some words from a writer, they might be tempted to downplay acts of mercy. Acts of justice, acts of help. Whereas there are other churches that are all about mercy and help and justice and needs of the body that might be tempted to downplay the importance of words. James would say they belong together. 
I mean, after all, we see that Jesus, who is the true and perfect word, made flesh. He walked the costly road to the cross for our rescue. Jesus was the most articulate human to ever live. And yet, his faith was not an articulate faith only. It was active. It was one in which made him an agent of rescue. And I love these words from Todd Hunter. We will become an agent of rescue to those around us, not in spite of our theology, but precisely because of our theology. We serve a Jesus who served us. So Lord, would you empower us to serve us? Would the very trust that we have in your word and in your promises, would the very importance of articulating those promises well and correctly, would all of that, Lord, would all of that compel us and move us towards costly action? Well, could we be agents of rescue? For those around us this morning, this week ahead. And would we see that as just simply opening up the gift of faith that you've given us? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.